everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. And uh, the podcast has been meandering around different places our last few episodes, but we're going to pick back up on the main X-Men line here today with X-Men 49. All you need to know, the teens believe Professor X is dead and they were disbanded by the FBI for a few minutes. Uh, Gene worked as a model. Scott worked as a DJ. I, there's there was some weird shit, but now they're back together. <laughs> we have a lot of craziness going on. So this issue is called "Who Dares Defy the Demiman." It's from October 1968. It is written by uh, Arnold Drake with pencils by Don Heck and Werner Roth, inks by John Tartaglione, and le- letters by Herb Cooper. Now Herb Cooper's a new name in the book. Um, I want I always like to do little bios when I present someone new. Uh, but I have not found any intel on Herb Cooper. So I sent out some requests to some of my friends in the biz, uh, and I hope to come back with some content later. I couldn't find anything uh, online. Uh, So we're going to be introducing our panel of esteemed and talented guests, uh, who I'm so honored to have here with us today. Uh, I'll let you both introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, uh, where we might know you from, And then the question I'll have you answer as we're going today is, if there were a Nancy Drew mystery based on your life, it would be called Nancy Drew and the blank. Uh, So let's begin with our first guest, uh, Susanna Polo. Susanna, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Um, I'm Susanna Polo. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm currently an entertainment editor at Polygon.com and the site's sort of official comic book expert. Um, But in another life, I started this website called TheMarySue.com. Um, and, uh, and kind of, uh, expanded across the internet from there. To all kinds of places. (laughs) Uh, Nancy Drew and the... Oh, right. Yes. I think it would probably be something like Nancy Drew and the Tumblr turmoil. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, and then I'm also, uh, honored to be joined by the talented artist, uh, Matt Horak. Matt, how are you? Good. Good. I'm, uh... My pronouns are he, him. I'm from Akron, Ohio. I draw comics, mostly Marvel stuff over the last few years. Uh, Started on Punisher, Spider-Man, Deadpool. I've done some Infinity Comics, most recently uh, in X-Men Unlimited with the uh, Deadpool Juggernaut team-up cross. I don't know what you would call it. (laughs) The the Unstoppables. Yes, yes, the Unstoppables. Uh, Yeah, and... uh, Nancy Drew and the, I don't know, the Akronites. <laughs> Just because I like that's what the people from Akron are called. There was a, there was a bit on Saturday Night Live when RuPaul hosted. Uh, she did like a reading at the library skit. If you saw it, it's hilarious. Look it up. But she's uh, she holds up a book of Nancy Drew and the mystery of the old clock. And she's like, she ain't fixing an old clock. She's out doing herself in the woods with that clock. Like it was just, it was just this completely irreverent, <laughs> shocking. Uh, I, I, I'm still smiling about it. Uh, lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he/him pronouns. I, uh, my, I mean, my listeners uh, know this already, but I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, um, documentary filmmaker, author. I work as a social worker, and I'm a father of two with my husband here in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, mine would be uh, Nancy Drew and the mysterious mental illness. <laughs> I just thought of my job and sometimes it's very hard to pin things down. So I feel like that's the biggest mystery I have to solve on a regular basis. 
Um, so we're going to spend just some time uh, getting to know the both of you, nerding out together. This is just kind of conversation style. So we'll all kind of just, uh, we're all meeting for the first time. So we'll just get to know each other as we go. Um, I, I want to start, uh, Matt, with you, if you would. Tell us a little bit about your journey as an artist, uh, kind of leading into your work at Marvel and more specifically with the X-Men. Well, I... Uh... You know, I wanted to draw comics pretty much as long as I knew that's a thing that people did for a living. And so I got started trying to do that back pre-internet. So a lot of mailing off samples and going to conventions and showing my stuff to people and um, was getting, you know, I was doing trying to do my own comics and then also um, doing some sample scripts and things like that here and there and get really frustrated. And through the years, because like I said, I live in Akron, uh, P. Craig Russell lives in Kent, Ohio, which is really close to Akron. I got to be friends with Craig and made him help me, <laughs> you know, no, he's a very gracious person. And, uh, you know, he was looking at some of my stuff and I was telling him how I was frustrated with, you know, trying to do my own thing and just struggling. Cause it's, it's a lot to write and draw your own comic, especially when you're starting out and tired of sample scripts. So he said, why don't you adapt something? So I transcribed an episode of Thundar the Barbarian, a cartoon from the 80s. I don't know. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm in my 40s. I remember Thundar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I watched an episode and transcribed it, and I made, I, turned, I made a comic adaptation of it and made many comics of those and started giving those to people when I went to conventions. And it worked because it was something I wanted to draw and was, you know, I, I was invested in on some level. And people would see and go, oh, Thundar. And then they'd actually look at it instead of going, thanks. And, you know, throwing it in their portfolio for the next convention. And uh, Rob Liefeld ended up digging that. And uh, eventually I ended up doing a book with him called The Covenant at Image. And that was my first like paid job. And then through that, keep going to conventions and stuff and got to... Um, be friends with more editors and stuff, make more connections and, and start working on some pitches with other writers and things like that. So still just being around and doing stuff. And then eventually um, when Steve Dillon died, I they asked me to take over Punisher and, and finish, finish his issue. And then I did a run on that for a while and pretty much been working with Marvel since. I mean, you said a lot of crazy shit just now and a lot of wonderful <laughs> shit, but to get the call that said, Steve Dillon has just passed and we would like you to finish yeah. the run. How did that feel? Well, I was actually out to dinner. It was, you know, he was in New York at New York Comic-Con when he got sick. And um, shortly after that, I came home and my wife and I were out to dinner for my anniversary when I got an email that said Marvel gig ASAP. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and uh so I opened that up and it said that he was sick and they wanted me to come in and help catch the book up. So I was like, yes, of course, you know, I'm excited for it. And then the next morning I woke up and found out that he had passed and they emailed me and said, okay, let's hold on. Let's sit tight. We don't know what we're going to do, how we want to approach this. And it was a, uh, it was appendicitis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was so talented. Uh, rest yeah. In peace. Yeah. I, I went to New York comic con that year and, and he was there and I remember seeing his table and thinking, oh, I, I, I don't have time right now. I'll go. I'll talk to him some other time and, you know, mm. get a chance. It's Gosh. horrible. So, yeah, a rough way to, to, to start. But, you know, I, 
not going to just cancel the book, I guess. Somebody had to do it. And I, I thought about saying no, you know, it's a rough situation to be in. And I didn't know if it'd be, if people would hate me for it or something like that, you know? So, and some people did, but I figured this is what I want to do. Might as well do it. Steve is a, Steve is a well-respected talent, mm-hmm. uh, but your pencils are beautiful, but they're not Steve's. And so anyone who looks right. is going gonna, is gonna to love them, but also compare them, of course, when you're doing a run right. like that. Uh, there's a quote from Denzel Washington I memorized years ago that was, luck is when opportunity comes along and you're prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And you, you build and you build and then the right, the right connection happens and you meet the right people and it's all who you know in the end, I think. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that was, like I said, spending the years at the shows and getting to know people and doing other projects, showing I could do the job and then, yeah, being ready when the opportunity arose, even if it's a horrible situation. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, on my, my pencils not being his, when I, so one of my, when the last issue he did that had my work next to his, you know, in it, um, I listened to a podcast where they reviewed it and they talked about Steve and how sad it was. And they said, you know, at least we got one more Steve Dillon moment out of this issue. And then they described a page that I drew. (laughs) I don't don't have the heart to correct them. And you got to work with Becky Cloonan on that title. Mm -hmm. Becky's great. What was it like working with Becky? Oh, she's awesome. Um, Yeah. And I got to meet her eventually at a couple of shows and we became good friends and stuff. Yeah. She's great. She, we tease each other over, you know, one of the things in there was Punisher swinging a, a bear trap over his head by, by a chain as he drives on a motorcycle. And I had such trouble drawing that bear trap. Like I never thought about drawing one before, but you know, it's a circle and it's got teeth that are supposed to be the same size and it should, you know, it was just like bending my brain. And so I always gave her a hard time for making me draw a bear trap. And then she gives me a hard time for not being able to draw a bear trap. <laughs> I remember the solicits coming out with uh, Becky Clinton writing Punisher. And I'm like, holy shit, they put a girl yeah. on Punisher. Finally. Yeah. Like I was so excited about that. Yeah. Uh, you, you drew a very menacing, but somehow very sexy Punisher. <laughs> at <the same> time. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, I like to, I like to draw them a little beat up and ugly. So, but hopefully in an attractive way. Well, especially when he puts the suit on, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like like a formal suit, I mean, not the Punisher suit. A tuxedo. That's less sexy, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to come back with some questions about your art. But Susanna, let me ask you a, a similar question. Tell us a little bit about your professional journey into all of your all of the stuff you're doing with Polygon uh, and, and expanding from there. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I think I was in high school when I decided that I wanted to write comic books for a living. And so I went to college and was like, I'm going to major in creative writing. Um, And then I got out of college and I did what um, all the things that I'd read about people who writers who got out, wanted to do fiction and got out of college and needed a job, um, which is that I went into journalism um, for something that I knew stuff about um, and started out uh, at a Uh, as an intern on a blog that wanted to cover geek culture um, and that eventually turned into being asked to start a blog that was specifically for women in geek culture in like 2011, right on kind of the edge of like people really like becoming aware that like women fans were a real force in conventions, um, starting to have conversations about how cosplayers are there because they're fans and not just getting looked at and like all of that stuff. Um, and it was kind of this catch 22 because it was work that I was extremely like, 
like in like in an in an integrity and in a personal principles way I was very invested in. But as a lot of folks of my generation who like went into media writing online, like for a company that was not like super great about pay and work life balance um, and all of that stuff. Um, and eventually it like burned me out pretty bad. Um, I had kind of a bad breakup with that company. Um, and then honestly, the Polygon job was the first place and like only place that I applied for um, because Polygon was looking to, um, they're looking at their audience of people who enjoyed reading about video games and going, well, like, why are we covering a Batman game, but not Batman comics? Um, we need, but we don't know anything about how to talk about anything but video games in the entertainment industry. And I was really in a position to be like, hey, I just spent like five years um, covering everything that women are into in nerd entertainment, which is to say every aspect of nerd entertainment. Um, and was able to come in there and help the site make baby steps into that realm. And now we have a full entertainment team and I got to step down a little bit from being in charge of lots of things and to be more just get to follow the stuff that I'm into, which is a lot of comics, um, but also just like other things that I have squirreled away in my brain with the same level of attention that I've done for comics like Lord of the Rings um, and uh, I'm blanking on anything else right now. Um, <laughs> you know, I, um, I've, I've interviewed some really incredible uh, women on my podcast uh, and I got to interview Linda Fight, who's the first woman who ever wrote at Marvel. Uh, and she weirdly shared kind of a similar story. Like here was this opportunity. I wanted to do this thing, but I ended up doing reporting instead because that's where I could find the find the fit. Uh, I I I uh, I know what it is to need to write and then to need to get paid to write, and it's the same for for art. I'm sure, Matt. Um, but it takes uh, determination to reinvent yourself in that way. Um, but then to get paid to do what you love or to write about what you love is is really incredible too. You've been at this for a while now. What are you working on currently? Um, well, let's see. I mean, this summer is all it's all just everything's happening at the same time. So, like, what I'm doing right now is like. Um, I literally sat down and looked at my month this week and was like, well, I'm going on vacation after San Diego Comic-Con. And that means that I need to start working on Sandman and Paper Girls now, <laughs> like, like right now. I need to figure out what I'm doing in the middle of also like talking about Ms. Marvel and talking about Thor and Jane Foster and, you know, getting ready for the Lord of the Rings to come out in early September and, you know, and making sure that's all, that's all on the books and going. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, last year was my big project at Polygon where I, I was in charge of, uh, doing 52 weekly essays about not myself, but freelancers and everybody, but a project of fifth, every week we were going to publish an essay about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, because it was the 20th anniversary of the Fellowship of the Ring. And that was, we never missed a deadline, but it was like my emotional barometer for the entire year was, do I know what we are doing for year of the ring next week? Um, and, uh, and it, it was, I learned so much from it and it's, it's definitely like just done like on like working through freelance pitches and working with freelancers and just leveled up in editing in a way that like, you know, I already considered myself a pretty good editor, but there's so much like more like experience that I've gone under my belt now and just ideas about like, you know, like, okay, like I, I have had, I have these two thoughts and they're interesting and I have a line between them, but like, what's the gap between there and 
a post that anybody is interested in to want to read, you know, um, and, and bridging that gap and, and encouraging other people to bridge that gap and figuring out when you like aren't quite there, you know, when it's like, um, as, you know, we did a piece about um, the jeweler who designed the rings for the Lord of the Rings movies. And it began Incredible. with a freelancer showing up to him and be like, hey, like, I just wanted to write this thing about this jeweler. Um, and because, uh, you know, I just found out who he is and I just want to write a piece about him. And I'm like, but can you talk to him? And she was like, no, well, he like he died in mid-production on the movie. And he never actually got to see it. And I was like, that's the story. Like, can you talk to his? Does he have, you know, like and she's like, oh, yeah, he has sons that still run like the little business that he had in. I don't know if it was Wellington, but like in New Zealand. And I was like, that's the story. You need to talk to all of those people. And, you know, and like that's like that's, you know, one of the big joys of my job is finding that stuff. And then, you know, now being at a, being at a company that does treat people pretty good, you know, in part because we unionize and that's very important. Um, but that I get to find people and go like, hey, I would love to pay you real money <laughs> to go do this thing um, and get it on my website where it's, where it's going to look really cool. And that's another thing about Polygon that I really, for our comics coverage that I really appreciate is that we have really great tools to make images look great on the website, which is not like a thing that a lot of websites can say. Like, and, and when I get stuff on Polygon, that's one thing I can take to comics companies when I talk to their PR and be like, if you give me this preview, I can make it look really good. Like I can make this art really visible and I can put it on a page in a way that like, it looks like an actual comic and it's not like clicking through a gallery and yeah. Uh, coordinating this podcast alone, which is such a small project in comparison to running a website like Polygon <laughs> is so much effort and so much coordination and communication and planning. Uh, I respect the hell out of, <laughs> out, of, out of what that takes. And then uh, for art as well, Matt, I know you're like working on your current project project while planning the next one while putting it in the bid for the one after that. It's always, uh, it's always so much. Um, I'm going to kind of go back and forth, but if you guys have questions for each other along the way, please feel free. Uh, Matt, you first came I, to I my have a question. Oh, please. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen Paper Girls yet? Do you get to see No, I got, <laughs> well, I mean, like, I don't want to get into like nitty gritty industry talk, but I got the screeners like yesterday and I haven't had a chance to watch them. This podcast is keeping me from watching episodes of Paper Girls, but I really, I really hope that's good. Yeah. Um, I really want, you know, I like, I, I love the comic to death. I think it was so smart and like the themes of it are so good. And like, there's so, there's so much stuff out there right now that's glorifying the eighties and like going back to that stuff and to find mm -hmm. some, I feel like just Paper Girls does it in a really, a really smart way that isn't just like man weren't they it isn't just 80s like there's 80s nostalgia in there mm -hmm. but it is also very much an acknowledgement of the 80s of like a tipping point in history um mm -hmm. and in like a cultural mood like, yeah. yeah uh set set in cleveland northeast ohio yeah, yeah. Well, i know <laughs> i went to i went to college in oberlin so oh okay cool yeah awesome right out there I, uh, so many, so many get it right, like Ms. Marvel, and so many get it wrong, like New Mutants. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to kind of go back and forth here for just a minute. Matt, you first came to my attention. Uh, I mean, I like to notice who's making the books that I'm reading, but you first came to my attention with Robbie Williams and Spider-Man Deadpool, which was fun in that crazy story with Master Matrix and all of his like army of LMD supervillains. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and then you did some stuff with Avida Ayala in, in Age of X-Men uh, on the Prisoner of X book. Uh, and and I, I was like, oh, that's the same guy. So when you came uh, into X-Men Unlimited, 
mm-hmm. and had that run with Fabian Nicieza. I'm like, okay, this guy's this guy's like picking up more consistent work. Uh, yeah. uh, I want to focus, of course, because it's an X Men podcast. Although all three of those are X Men related, uh, the the three stories I just mentioned. But I want to focus a little bit on uh, on your recent X Men Unlimited run. What's it like to draw in that? format. So for for folks that don't know, X-Men Unlimited uh, is running on the Marvel app. So you're scrolling with your thumb. It's not a physical book that you pick up unless they print it later. Um, The images tend to run long. Uh, It's like long spreading pages that you scroll through. Uh, I'm always fascinated by how that works. Uh, Tell me a little bit about working with Fabian on that book. Um, It was cool. Uh, Fabian's been doing that, working in that format for a long time. He did the book Outrage, a webtoon with uh, Riley Brown for years. So he really knew how that format worked. And I took to it pretty well. I think one of my strengths is storytelling. So it wasn't too much of a struggle until I had to do it over and over. And then then when I realized I can never have a panel wider than four inches, essentially, since it's made for a phone that it causes all kinds of problems, but there's things that it alleviates like because you're always scrolling to the next panel, I don't have to worry so much about speaking order with the characters in a, in a regular comic. You want the first character speaking in any given panel to be on the left. If you can help it. Sure. Which uh, can cause all kinds of problems, especially if the script has, you know, the first speaker changing every other panel, which, you know, good comic writers know to try to avoid that and things like that. But in the scrolling thing, I don't have to worry about it as much. So it's just one of those things that kind of frees you up. And then there's the ability to do, I mean, yes, you're limited to a four inch wide panel, but you have an unlimited space up and down. So we did some, and and Fabian had written stuff into the script that was meant to capitalize on that. So that was really fun, like crashing a crashing a helicarrier and having it, you have to scroll through the entire like helicarrier as you go through all the, the things. And then there was a scene where Deadpool fights his way through a bunch of guards. And so that was just, you know, it was like, almost like animation where it's just going from one punch to kick to slice to the next. So that stuff was really fun. Very time consuming, I imagine. Uh, like very labor heavy. Yeah. I mean, it, comics are just labor heavy anyway. So um, I always think as I get older and the longer I do this, I'll get figure out more little tricks to save myself time. But those get yes I find those but then I also be like oh it'd be really cool if I did this and then that just tacks more time on it because I came up with some idea that I have to figure out or whatever so I'm curious um, do you no go ahead well I was gonna ask do you work physically or digitally uh I went back and forth on that I do my layouts digitally Hmm. and the the book I'm working the thing I'm working on now I did digital finishes I've done digital finishes I don't like to though so the bulk of the X-Men Unlimited thing, the I did draw actual physical pages for it. That's really, that, see, that was my question about it because I was like, because I know what like a standard comic book sheet looks like, yeah. um, but for something that's just a four inch, that four inch narrow strip, you know, just do you just tape them down a wall? Yeah, well, it took me a long time to figure out the best way to do it. And then I want to say I was looking at, I saw some of Scott Hepburn's pages from a Venom Infinity comic he did. And I realized, you know, if you do a double page splash in a traditional comic, it's two pages butted together on the vertical side. Right. So if you're doing a horizontal splash, you just tape them on the short side. And I was like, 
why did it take me so long to figure that out? <laughs> like, if I want to draw a longer page, just take two pages together. Like, it's simple. <laughs> so I finally did that. So I have a bunch of, oh, here they are. I guess the people listening to this can't see this, so it's kind of pointless. But let's pull it out anyway. Oh, these are, of course, not double page slides. But I ended up doing, like, one panel, two panels mm -hmm. per page vertically is how it worked out. And this is a good example of the scrolling thing because we could have this, you know, juggernauts up in space and communicating telepathically with Xavier on Earth. And I could just do this fade between them. And as you scroll, you kind of get this feeling of going down to the Earth and stuff. So you could play mm -hmm. around with that stuff, which was really fun. But we uh, figured that out about taping them together vertically, then it was smooth sailing. We occasionally on the on the podcast put a single character on trial is what we call it. And I'll do I'll read their whole chronology. Uh, and then and we have an episode featuring the angel coming up uh, as an example. But I did one on the juggernaut right around the time you were publishing this X-Men Unlimited. And when I started my research on him, I was like, this guy is just this lunkhead who always wants revenge, is always smashing shit. All right, all right. But when I read it front to back, he had a ton of heart. And yeah. Vivian Nicieza sees that heart and really utilizes it first in his Juggernaut Limited and then in his work with the character. And now, of course, the character's being featured in in uh, uh, um, Le Legend of X. Is that Legion. It's Le Legion. Legion of X, yeah. excuse me. Uh, my brain is too full of content for today. <laughs> uh, yeah, the one where Nightcrawler tries to revolutionize policing. <laughs> yes, yes, in, in 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 Legion's brain, it's uh, yeah. it's a lot of fun. Um, Juggernaut uh, has a lot of heart to him. I want to hear your opinion, Matt. Recognizing this is not canon, are he and Black Tom secretly gay? Um, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that have we ever seen either of them with a with a significant other of any kind? No, but they sure act like they're crime husbands. <laughs> <laughs> but there aren't they brothers? No, no. Oh no. Uh, yeah, uh, not is Charles Xavier's half brother. Right, right, right. Uh, no blood relation, but he and Black right. Tom, you draw this iconic panel that like set the internet on fire of the two of them embracing on Krakoa. Oh yeah. And uh Juggernaut's like come live and he's like, "Well, I have to be invited, old man." And we're like, "Ooh." Yeah, that's that's not the first time because I drew I drew Spider Man and Deadpool embracing a couple times, which people got excited. Yeah, but those two aren't gay. I mean, Deadpool's for sure gay for Spider Man, but not the other <laughs> sure. way around. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe I never even thought about that. I guess Black Tom is Banshee's brother. That's why I'm getting it confused. They both uh, are... I think I think he's his right? cousin. He's cousin. Okay, cousin. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly. They're both Cassidy's though, right? I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were in love with the same woman and then Black mm -hmm. Tom raised Teresa. So on the podcast, we call Juggernaut uh, and, and Black Tom Teresa's crime dads a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I, I feel like Juggernaut would be annoyed that anyone is asking at all. Like, he's, it's not your, none of your business. <laughs> he seems like a very buttoned up kind of guy. <laughs> Uh, and Susanna, to, to shift back for just a minute, I've been a fan of your writing for a long time. Oh my God, thank uh, I didn't, you so much. I didn't think we'd ever meet. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I think you are snarky and funny and nerdy and comprehensive, and it's a lot of fun to follow you on Twitter uh, as well. <laughs> um, when you came to my mind for this particular podcast, I came across an essay you wrote about Arnold Drake and his connection to the X-Men, which is when I sent the inquiry about coming on. So I'm going to review for our listeners who may just be tuning in. 
Uh, Arnold Drake created a team called the Doom Patrol for DC Comics right around the same time the X-Men were launched. And there were kind of some strange similarities and there was a little bit of controversy, but then he ended up getting hired to write the X-Men for a little while. And we're in that era of comics right now, right before Roy Thomas and Jim Stranko take over and then Neil Adams shortly after. Um, uh, Susanna, tell us a little bit, if you recall, I don't, I don't know if it's fresh in your mind, uh, the Arnold Drake Doom Patrol slash X-Men story. Yeah, so um, Doom Patrol actually launched slightly before the X-Men. Um, and in terms of similarities, like they're both books that were trying to do like heroes whose powers were a burden in addition to like being, you know, giving them the ability to like save lives and like do good in the world. Um, and I think I think if, if folks today are familiar with Doom Patrol, it's probably through either the Doom Patrol television show on HBO Max um, or through Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, which really like in the same way that what Claremont did for the X-Men, like Morrison did the first Doom Patrol run that really like worked. Where you take um, the seeds of way. something that was there and capitalize on what's working and then make it amazing. Yeah. 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 And then from the start, Doom Patrol was like the parallels between Doom Patrol and the X-Men at the beginning, like they're both groups of misfits with powers that sometimes go out of control that they are being taught how to control and to like do good in the world with by a paraplegic like academic authority figure. Um, the parallels were Are they were both strong. bald? Am I remembering that right? No, Professor Calder has a beard and I believe a full head of hair. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> but he, but he, and he does usually have like a blanket over his legs in like the early comics and like, um, you know, folks like Robot Man, who's a, a human brain who was in a horrible accident and now he's a robot body and Elastigirl who's just, I mean, if you can think about the Incredibles character and basically got it. Um, she's, uh, um, also canonically, uh, Beast Boy's mom, if, like, just in a weird connection, um, all the way to, like, everybody's favorite Teen Titans characters, but, um, so yeah, so Doom Patrol launched, I think, like, like, two or three months before X-Men number one, um, and Don Heck has been, he's kind of like, you know, I, I found a couple, their quotes, you know, from a couple different interviews where he's talked about like, oh yeah, you know, I was pitching it in DC and I'm sure one of the, one of the guys there like went over to Marvel and told Stan Lee and he ripped off my, that, you know, DC was doing a book with a bunch of misfits and a professor and he ripped off my idea. And then he's done other interviews, like in the same year where he's like, hey, you know, like we were all being a thousand monkeys at typewriters trying to make as many comics as possible. And at some point, ideas are going to overlap. Things are going to happen at the same time. You know, influencers are going to be the same and and some ideas are going to come together. Um, and I think Doom Patrol, like Doom Patrol now is like, it's almost difficult to see the parallels to the X-Men because of the way that Doom Patrol has grown, I think in response to like, the popularity of the X-Men. That like Doom Patrol could no longer be just a series about misfit superheroes saving the world and like doing regular superhero stuff. When Grant Morrison took over the book, they really turned it into something like surrealist. Um, really like putting in their like fascination with um with Dadaist art and with um with the psychology the potential psychology of superheroes um and in the modern day the doom patrol are just like extremely like they're 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 still on a, like a strange parallel track with the x-men right because we consider the x-men to be like um 
very like queer parallels um, in the modern day. Um, and Doom Patrol also has become a book where like um, a lot of the notable runs, you know, Gerard Way took over Doom Patrol. Like that's my Doom Patrol book. The book that like sold Doom Patrol to me was, um, was by Gerard Way, who was a childhood fan of Grant Morrison's stuff. Um, grew up, made the Umbrella Academy because he wanted to do something just like Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol and then eventually um, got to do Doom Patrol himself. And, and it's very much a book that is, has been shaped by creators who are gender non-conforming um, and who want to put, um, if not explicitly gender non-conforming characters, characters that are um, outside of society um, and who are not convenient for society in a way that um, that is very relatable to the queer community, I think, um, and to the disabled community. And um, and you see, especially in the, there's so much in the first season of the Doom Patrol TV show that is very much like, oh, this is like, like um, one of the smartest things that I think anybody has done with Cyborg is if he's not going to be hanging out with the Teen Titans, is they put him in the Doom Patrol show and used him as like the normal guy on this team of weirdos, but in a way that like points out like, man, your body's like 75% robot and your dad did that to you because he didn't want you to die. Like he took away your bodily autonomy because he, he would rather you live as this weird robot cyborg and also be a superhero because he like thinks that's who you are. Then like you have your own control over your life um, and that's just like, that's just, it's really smart and really interesting and, and really um, um, just like not, you know, not a typical like, oh, you know, here's a villain and we got to go, you know, save people and, um, and yeah, I'm not sure where I'm, so Don Heck, parallels between X-Men and Doom Patrol. Um, I don't know, things, things in comics, convergent evolution in comics is like a pet fascination for me. Yeah, like I, a, a Deadpool and Deathstroke and uh, Deadshot. And like, what's the relationship there? And like, you know, the owl and owl man, and then the other owl man at DC or black cat and Catwoman, or uh, the way that like, you can look at punch. If you have somebody, a modern reader looking at punch and Judy for the first time, would be like, who are these Walmart brand Joker and Harley Quinn? Like, <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, it's that's, it's, that's it's funny, sorry. Oh, it's funny be. that, that De no. Doom Patrol and X-Men kind of came from the same place and went in wildly different directions, partly because of what Morrison did with them. And then Morrison came in and did new X-Men, but it didn't, it didn't turn out like Doom Patrol. I, I, I don't know. I, again, I don't, I don't know what that means, but it's just, it's, I mean, I know they're very different worlds and there'd been a lot of history between there, but it, it uh, I don't know. It was cool. The almost the, Morrison. Almost the strangest part. And when we go back to sixties, Marvel, we've done a lot of conversations on the podcast. Roy Thomas, who I got to interview was kind of bored with the team. He didn't really know what to do with them. So he started bringing in kind of the pinch hitters, right? So we saw we saw Gary Friedrich come in, we saw Arnold Drake come in, and they're uh, they're interesting stories. But you had the Doom Patrol guy telling the X Men stories for a while. Yeah, uh, I had I had no idea Arnold Drake ever drew ever wrote X Men. Yeah, just for that. just for a handful of issues, but he created yeah. Polaris, like well, uh, which is uh, yeah, a, a lasting legacy for him. Yeah, uh, and he brought such a serious tone to the book. Uh, the X Men 
in the 60s kind of vacillate between kind of nonsense and then it'll get like real serious tone for a minute and we're in kind of a serious tone uh storyline that we're going to be starting today there's like a four-part story with mesmero and polaris and the robot of magneto <laughs> which we'll talk about next time a little bit um but it's a really interesting thing uh let me hear each of you uh tell me a little bit about your journey as an x-men fan what was your first book uh who are your beloved characters or runs uh matt do you want to go first sure uh I'm a child of the 80s, so Claremont, Ramita. I, I came on with John Ramita. I missed Byrne. So right right about when Ramita started is when I started reading X-Men. And then through the whole Fall of the Mutants and Mutant Massacre and Inferno and all that stuff, I was a regular buyer of X-Men. And then kind of kept up with them here and there through the years. Did you uh, Do you still read them now? Here and there. I when I read comics at all, <laughs> you know, I, I would always hear a creator say, I don't read comics anymore. I was like, that's weird. And now that I draw comics, I, I don't read them very often. I, I relate because I have no time to read any yeah. of the entertainment website. <laughs> right. Although I did when, you know, uh, not to mention the unmentionable, but I went and read, uh, after I read uh, um, the X-Men issue, I went and looked up Leah to see what, she'd done that I hadn't read recently. So I read Trial of Magneto last night too. Which oh, which is so good. And Leah's doing uh, an up on upcoming book called Exterminators. Yeah. Can't it's going to be that. like an explodey yeah. girls versus vampires. And I'm super excited. Yeah. It's like, what if the X-Men was Grindhouse? Like, yes, please. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in for it. that. I'm pumped about it. I um I grew up, uh, I, I, grew, I was born in 78, but I grew up in the 90s reading the X-Men mostly. Mm -hmm. But during that time, I was picking up all of the 80s stuff and then the 70s stuff. Like I, I got super obsessed into my 20s, uh, yes. which is right before I started on the handbook stuff, which makes sense, right? You got to have the obsessed nerds <laughs> doing yeah. that type of work. Um, uh, Susanna, before I have you answer the same question, um, Matt, right before we started, I mentioned I had worked on the handbooks and you uh, you were going to tell me something interesting. Oh, yeah. I have um, I had wanted to start a collect a sketch collection going to conventions and having so many friends. And so I wrote down the the characters in the deluxe edition of the handbook in the same order they appear. Here, here's Scott Koblish did all of Alpha Flight's heads. Oh, me. my God. That's amazing. So I wrote down all the characters as they appear in the handbook and I'm having a. Uh, different people do handbook entries. There's a Daniel Warren Johnson Ant-Man. I think that is wonderful. There's Arcade, my friend of mine, Ted Mouse. <laughs> so there's all, you know, there's all, there's Aries, a kind of classical interpretation of Aries. I am literally, uh, I'm literally standing in front of a wall of, uh, of 60s characters done by modern artists in their original costumes. I, we, yeah. You and I have a similar uh, nerd style. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. I've never had a convention sketchbook, but I, God, I, I, I like resolved. I was like, at the end of San Diego Comic Con 2019, I was like, I should start a convention sketchbook. Yeah. And well, here we are in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> well, there weren't any conventions for a minute. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I get to announce this here for the first time, actually, uh, and it won't be it won't be for a month or so. Um, but uh, if either of you even know this name, I'm hoping. I'm having a, I'm featuring uh, Elliot R. Brown on the podcast next month, who did all of the original like yeah. designs in the in the 80s handbooks, uh, which I'm super excited about. Like the little nerd in me was like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I took those out when I wrote all the names in the same order. Right, right. You don't need a sense. 
you don't need a modern uh, interpretation of the inside of Spider-Man's web shooters, I suppose. <laughs> I've been I trying to sell my editor on letting me do a feature on the map of Gotham City from the No Man's Land arc mm. because yeah, it shows that. up every like it shows up every it is the anytime like you know our, my our tabletop editor was like oh i got this new tabletop batman game do you want to look here's some pictures of it and i was like oh that's the no man's land map <laughs> wow. but my editor keeps telling me that no nobody is going to read the oral history of a map <laughs> they might be fascinated you never know i was this guy uh, would <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'm credited in this book, but I was part of the team that was working on the Marvel Atlas, which oh, is yeah. like the guys that went through the whole history and wrote up like countries, like entries on all the fictional and real <laughs> countries. And the it was fascinating. I, that, that stuff makes me happy. Um, Susanna, same question. What's your journey kind of as an X-Men fan? Uh, first issue picked up uh, and beloved storyline. <laughs> Well, like the place I came into comics was Batman. So really, like, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in disguise here, cheap um, uh, in wolf's clothing. Um, I'm a de- I'm, I'm the what is that? I'm, I'm after Brand Eck. I'm a, <laughs> I'm one of the, the, I'm from the distinguished competition or whatever. But I love that you called um, yourself so my... a sheep in wolf's clothing instead of the other way around. <laughs> um, listen, it's like it's almost nine o'clock where I am <laughs> after a long day. Um, but uh, but I so my entries to X Men are actually like really strange and sporadic for a while. I think Exiles was one of the first comics that I ever read, mm. with like with like Blink and um, um, wait, not Blink. Who am I thinking of? No, Blink's yeah. it. No, it is Blink. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just like getting these really weird looks at like here are alternate versions of the X Men. <laughs> figure that figure that out. Um, and then the first X Men books I really got hooked on were actually Ultimate X Men. Mm. Um, and then you know I like I. Uh, you know, I've, I've, um, the Hickman books hooked me pretty hard, but, and, you know, professionally I started, you know, once I was covering comics for a living, you know, and like getting press previews and, you know, like I made it my job to keep on top of all that stuff and like sort of figure out what was going on generally. Um, the Hickman stuff is really where I started really reading and enjoying like everything and just being mm -hmm. on top of it. And, but like the majority of what I know about the X-Men I learned from listening to Jay and Miles. Like, um, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's what it is. There's um, some incredible podcasts out there, Jay and Miles and Cerebro and ex-wife and so many that we, that we love on here and we get to feature guests from there sometimes. I, um, I adore uh, the exiles. I think one of the most fascinating things about that series, and I hope to have Judd Winnick on the podcast someday uh, he he could have used alternate versions of Storm and Wolverine and Cyclops, but instead he went back and took all the forgotten heroes from the X-Men's past. He took Changeling and Mimic and uh, and Thunderbird and used uh, created beloved versions of these characters that we've been focusing on in the 60s books, which is which I think is just wonderful. Uh, have I, I think I think if I have a favorite X-Men, it's X-23. She's just a mm. character archetype that I like already gravitate to gravitate to to begin with. Like teen girl science experiment assassin like you know um figuring out what life outside the the laboratory looks like and um oh and also like you know i'm a batman fan so emotionally unavailable father figure is like <laughs> really like you know that's my jam um so yeah yeah tom taylor's work or his series with her is, is mm, the yeah. definitive version for me such a good was it marco tamaki who followed up on that Yes, or, in, the, yeah. in the series just after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he laid that groundwork that just changed the yeah. character completely for yeah. me. Uh, so, so good. Now in this house, we stand Jonathan the werewolf. 
or the, the, the Wolverine. <laughs> oh, Jonathan, the Wolverine's amazing. Yeah. Have, have either of you read any of the 60s books? Or was this your first foray? I, I had to have at some point, you know? Yeah, I can't <laughs> discount was... that I have dipped back into them for like, oh, who's this character in this upcoming movie? I guess I got to write a post about it. <laughs> and when I, when I was younger and I, I bought anything that showed up in the quarter book, anything I saw in the handbook, and then I saw, oh, that's that guy from the handbook in the quarter bin. I would pick it up. So I'm sure I read some of that stuff because that stuff was still in the quarter box back in the 80s when I was first buying comics. So uh, That's part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is there's so many beloved fans of the X-Men, but most people start at Claremont. Uh, and right. very often people have not gone back and read any of the 60s stuff, or if they have, it's just a couple isolated issues. Uh, the issue we're reading today is dense and there's some silliness to it. But the early stuff, man, like one through 10 is just sheer like fuckery, nonsense, craziness. Like <laughs> today makes a lot of sense in comparison. Uh, with that, are you guys okay if we transition into the issue review uh, portion? At the end of the podcast today, I'll ask you to plug anything you have coming up, recognizing this is coming out July 20th. Uh, so start thinking along the lines of anything you'd like to talk about. And we'll be doing, uh, of course, some social media posts around that work. Um, when this is released. Uh, what an honor to get to know you both. This is fun. My favorite thing about this is just uh, assembling groups of strangers who leave as friends. And uh, this, is a, this is a lot of fun, a ton of respect for you both. Um, here, here. So let's, uh, let's jump into the issue review for today. Uh, if we take a look at the cover for uh, X-Men number 49, um, we get this gorgeous, unexpected kind of 60s pop art, Jim Steranko cover. Jim's going to take over the book right after this. He did a lot of Nick Fury stuff back in the day. I'll talk about him a little bit more next episode. Uh, but this is a this is a startling cover, given what has come before. Um, I believe that head that they're standing on at the bottom is supposed to be Mesmero, but it looks nothing like him from the issue. So I, I it's just a head. Uh, what do you guys think of this cover? Does the issue ever explain who the Demi-Men are? No, nope, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. <laughs> I'm going to say the same thing. Like, why is this called this? <laughs> I have a big note about that. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to pull it up now on Unlimited. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, it's... Beast looks kind of funky. He's got kind of a weird head, but I, I think that oh, yeah. like, all of the characters are featured really beautifully. I mean, even though they're in the back, uh, Iceman and Angel kind of take take the lead for me here i think it's i think it's really really beautiful it's also pared down a little bit a lot of the covers recently have had a lot of words on them uh so this one is a much more clean image with that you know gorgeous stranko signature on the side yeah i guess that's mesmero yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, the demi I mean, men i guess yeah we're gonna talk about mesmero today uh i've got thoughts um so this this issue is called Who Dares to Fight the Demi-Men. The term Demi-Men, I had to give this some thought. They are either fans of Demi Moore or, <laughs> or uh, I mean, the, the, the word Demi means half, right? So technically, I think they're trying to say Who Dares to Fight the Half-Men. And in this issue, we see Mesmero summon an army of latent mutants whose powers haven't been realized. So is there a parallel of yeah. the mutant army being half men? Because I, I there's no <laughs> one in this issue called Demi anything. <laughs> right. Any what, thoughts or yeah. theories? 
It's just some just some classic Marvel style discontinuity. Right. Like. <laughs> so who are so who are his? Okay, they're his elite guard. These other guys, the orange. We're gonna we're gonna get there in just a minute. Okay. <laughs> uh, I will say this was a weird read, and and I was kind of mystified the whole time. We uh, we've had a number of weird reads lately. If, if you listen to our 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 uh, issue with uh, Greg Shegel. Uh, it involves Iceman, or I'm sorry, Angel landing on an island that's populated by bird people, including a World War II hero named Red Raven. And he's just like, what the fuck is going on here? And, and there's I, really I, no... I love, I love the comic book island that has one lost World War II hero on it. I love, I love that. It crops up all the time. There's so many islands with a single World War II hero on them. Yeah. For years uh, after World War II, every island is going to go get all these guys. Red Raven. Is chicken in every pot too. and a war hero on every island. Yeah. Uh, Matt, would you walk us through the first five pages of the issue? Tell us a little bit about what happens. Just kind of some of your thoughts and observations, if you will. Okay. Do I have to understand what happens? Nope, I'm here to help you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my stack of notes all ready to go. Oh, right. You said the FBI or somebody had shut them down. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a weird thing I didn't really catch at first when I started reading it. But yeah, Angel comes back to the the mansion and then has a very confusingly lettered inner monologue <laughs> about a ticking sound. He is high and he's been reading a lot of Shakespeare. Yeah, I don't know what's <laughs> going on. And then can I can I ask which time that Professor X faked his death? This is yeah. <laughs> this is the first time. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I made a note when he finds the sound or source of the ticking. He said, "Ah, there's the little doll." Yeah, there's weird hmm. turn of. I mean, is that a thing people used to say? I guess. I feel like a doll's like a dame. There's like a yeah. There, yeah. There's like a. There, whenever I read comics from this era, I'm always like, how much of this is actual things that people would said say? How much this is just like the writer has their own way of phrasing things, and how much right. of this is like a middle aged guy trying to sound like a teenager from the '60s? Yeah. Like <laughs> how much of this is like a greatest generation person trying to make a character who talks like a baby boomer. Well, and Beast is the guy with all the big words, right? And this is Angel with like a shit ton of just inner monologuing with giant words that it just seems very uncharacteristic. He's he's very homesick for the X-Mansion. He's yeah. been gone like a week <laughs> and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm home and it feels wonderful, but it's in like 12 <laughs> word bubbles. Yeah, he's, he's much more articulate in his mind than he is uh, in, in real life, I guess. <laughs> uh, this bubble here where he just says, there's not that noise. And it's yeah. for real. Gotta find it. <laughs> I don't know what that, I read noise. that like four times trying to figure out what the Like, is there a missing word? Yeah. What is going on with this? <laughs> and then and then he thinks, strange. sheesh, I feel like Nancy Drew in the Mad Laboratory at Happy Valley, which is not yeah. a real book. I was really uh, disappointed that it's not a real book. But that was the, that was the, uh, the, the thought, well, good Lord, I can't, the origin of the question earlier. I loved Nancy Drew books growing up as a kid. Um, I uh, I have an older sister who had the whole collection. And when she was like in the shower, I'd sneak in her room and hide a Nancy Drubick under my shirt and then like keep it under my mattress like it was a Playboy. And I got <laughs> caught a couple of times and she'd get so pissed. But that <laughs> she was like so protective of her Nancy Drubick collection. Uh, Matt, what happens when uh, when he hears the ticking or discovers the source? 
I guess he discovers it's Cerebro, which they thought they had turned off, I think. They had, he said yeah. they they thought they had turned all the things off. So he reaches out. He, he really tries hard to reach out to Jean telepathically. She hears him and then tries to bring a bring a beast and Iceman in on the telepathic Zoom call. <laughs> and uh, they're skydiving, of course. Iceman, Iceman has gotten them jo- a job skydiving, and he calls them the danger twins. <laughs> what the fuck is this job? What are they doing? And they're the oh, danger they're, they're twins, like, which is terrible. <laughs> the danger twins. They're the danger twins. It must be an air show type thing, I guess. I would like to take a moment here to examine how, like, the the comic book trope of the telepathic conference call is so unestablished that Angel has to explain in monologue yeah. what he's asking Gene to do. Or like today, it'd be like, oh yeah, Gene can like telepath, like let me contact Gene, and she's like, and then there would they would just be in a telepathic Zoom room together, and everybody would know what that was. Yeah, um, we're watching tropes form, being formed yeah. in real well, time. And Gene, I mean, using modern terminology or '90s at least, Gene must have formed some sort of silent with everyone beforehand, because you can't just like Gene, I need you in your head and have her read you, yeah. you know, thousands of miles away. Uh, if you look at the panel with Gene, well, let me just note really quickly: Gene in the '60s is treated terribly, and what the way they explain it back then is once Professor X died, quote unquote, that he transferred his powers to Gene, which is Modern writers have said, you know, he was blocking Gene's telepathy previously and now it's been awakened. But Gene, as the telepath for the team, starts to get a lot more airtime and has a lot more value to the book. Uh, If you look at the image of Gene, you see Angel on the left that she's conferencing in. The person on the right is Cyclops, who is, he has two issues, and this is one of them, where he works as a radio DJ. Do you, uh, do you think Cyclops would make a good DJ? Oh, man. In, in 1968, no less. Probably Paul Anka all the time. And as well as a new, but he's in a newsroom though. Well, 1968 he, news is not, that's not an easy road to yeah. report on. A lot he's of stuff happened very in 1968. Seriously. On that note, you could, I could see him taking that very seriously. No. And being, feeling very responsible to inform the people of what's going on out there. He says it's, it's a okay cover. To... It's a cover identity, so he can watch for yeah. evil mutants, basically. Sure, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, yes, very Clark Kent of you, Scott. Sure. Um, I mean, glasses work much better in radio than they do on television. You know, he's got a face um. for radio. <laughs> I I do sort of like the idea that the gene buzzing in telepathically like makes. Hank forget that he's needs to pull his chute for a second. I think that's kind of a cool idea that the concentration is is lapsed for a second. And then he's like, and, "Oh yeah, I'm falling." And how does Iceman save him? With a um, um giant with ice, tongs, ice tongs, you know, ice tongs. A massive pair of ice tongs because the slide wasn't working at the time. No. <laughs> Not tongs for ice. Tongs made of ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh right. And he calls him booby, which I always mm-hmm. always liked. That's some, definitely an older term. Bubby, Bubby, Bubby. And then uh, even though we know why they've lost con- contact, there's this entire panel of Gene going, Hank responded for a second and lost contact. And then a very large letters, why? Now the not, re- not important to anything. The reason nope. Angel has cried that it's an emergency is Cerebro has detected a massive mutant energy source. So Cerebro activates when there's like a huge amount of power or a new activating power. Uh, it's done at non-mutants too. 
but this is kind of the first indication that there's something crazy out there happening for mutants. But I want to note, Mesmero has not summoned his mutant army yet. So what the fuck is Cerebro reacting to? I don't know. <laughs> uh, Matt, did you want to take us on to page five where we get the first appearance of the iconic ex-villain Mesmero, who everybody yeah. lists on their top favorite list, of course. I mean, he's got, I had, I, I looked it up to see who designed him because he's got, got a, a wild costume that yeah, man. I'm pretty sure. He looks like an are... absolute Power Rangers villain. Yes, he does. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and his minions are kind of a uh, putty esque, or what? Are, what are those guys called? Putties, or they just got some really tall turtlenecks, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's really, really, he's really pimping in that outfit. Man. <laughs> uh, do you guys know the character Mesmero? Is this someone you you're familiar with? So, From if that. I was to list a hundred X villains, I don't even think he would hit my list, but. This is the poor man's purple man. If you read, uh, like if you've watched Jessica Jones with the purple man. So Mesmero is a guy, we know his first name is Vincent. Uh, he has the power to control minds with, uh, with his sight, basically. Uh, he's a relatively low level power telepath, but once he's got his hooks in you, he can stay there for a while. He's been used a couple dozen times, uh, or as Connor Goldsmith would say, a couple Zaladanes. Uh, we see we see this character show up in the 90s and 80s in some very, very rapey storylines that I'm going to have some things to say about in future episodes, uh, which I think were okay in the 90s, but is super not okay now in the 2020s. Uh, this character is on Krakoa. He is green skinned uh, and I kind of fucking hate him. He's one of the worst. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on Mesmero before we talk about what he's doing here? It's just a wild outfit, I guess. I'm, I'm surprised he's on Krakoa. I, I mean, I know they've kind of letting everyone in there, but I don't know. I feel like, I don't know, the Magneto fan club is just full of such weirdos. Yeah. That's, that that tracks, though. <laughs> so Mesmero, and I'll, I'll cover this very briefly, his plot in this, he's acting like he knows Magneto. We're going to see next issue, Magneto seemingly appears but it's actually not Magneto. It's a robot of Magneto, which we learned shortly after that. And then we learn in a different title that this robot was created by a daredevil villain named Star Saxon, who goes on to become the Captain America villain, Machine Smith. And I don't, <laughs> even, know, I don't even know what Machine Smith's involvement is here. I think that was just character creators trying to tie up loose plot ends. So as I understand it, Mesmero thinks he's allied with Magneto, who everyone believes is dead at this time. And he has formed a, a mutant army, which he's clearly mind controlling. He's brought all these guys in and dressed them in these god awful orange and blue uniforms. And he's like, serve me because I'm as great as Magneto. It's me, Mesmero. But of course he's making them shout all glory to Magneto. And did you notice when they're shouting their praises, there's the one guy up front who's like, and also Mesmero, don't forget him. <laughs> you just know Mesmero's like, don't forget me, bitch. <laughs> He also has built some sort of machine called a psych generator, which is basically Cerebro. He's uploading his mind and sending out thought patterns to summon latent mutants to the fold. So it, that's kind of his weird fucking plot. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. But uh, Susanna, do you want to take over the next five pages? Tell us what happens. Sure. Yeah. Um, so he uh, he does his, um, his sort of uh, reverse Terrigen bomb. Um, to get <laughs> to summon a, a million human beings who don't know that they're mutants yet. And I do really like um, one of my favorite things about 
mid-century comics is seeing like where these artists come from like commercial illustration and fashion illustration i love like like i love this panel of just like a crowd of random human beings and just like what does sorry i forgot the name of the the artist um it's don, don heck. heck right it's don heck it's yeah don heck don heck and werner roth both in this issue yeah, yeah, yeah. Of just like, yeah, there's like a, you know, so they're like different kinds of, of like fashionable women and like a couple guys in crisp suits and then like some middle-aged guy. And then all the way in the back, there's this mustachioed hippie um, <laughs> with like a ribbed turtleneck. Right. Um, like there's always at least one hippie in these crowd scenes. Um, this That page, this page is awesome, by the way. I, I remember being yeah. struck by this page. It's a really cool page. Yeah, the, the lettering on like awake over yeah, and over yeah, again. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, good stuff. I think it's it's um, Don Heck on the main story, and Werner Roth wrote the origin mm. of Beast story at the end. Yeah. So. so there is there is something really powerful about this in the mythos, which we which it's not noted here at all. But through the whole '60s run, we get kind of the same ten or fifteen mutant characters over and over. We're gonna meet Polaris here. We meet Havoc, and we meet Sunfire soon but there's not a ton of mutants back in the 60s. We see the same characters show up once in a while, Magneto and Blob and Toad, right? And a few others, uh, you know, Eunice the Untouchable and the Vanisher, but there's not a lot of mutants. And in this, we're kind of without saying it out loud, acknowledging that there's a million people out there that have mutant powers that have not activated or perhaps are living private lives that are not connected to the X-Men. And yeah. this is kind of the first big mention of that, that there's a lot more going on in the world than we recognize. Because he summoned a whole army full of people who have no idea that they're mutants, apparently, uh, which is a really interesting thing. So the Magneto robot really wants a big army, which is a very 60s Magneto storyline, but Magneto's not involved. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Any thoughts on that, on the kind of the profoundness of that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I mean, it didn't even occur to me that like that would be, you know, something that was new to the comic. Um you know, Professor, Professor X has Cerebro and to me, Cerebro means like, oh yeah, what the X-Men do is they seek out new mutants and they bring them back to the school and they help them control their powers and, you know. That's not 60s X-Men. They yeah. just responded to the threat of evil mutants constantly. That's all they did. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I did, when I read that, I did think that, oh, wow, there's all these other mutants. And, and I do know that that was not it was a long time before we started getting lots of mutants. Yep. Yep. There was yeah, and just, to be uh, clear, like, you know, back then. do any crowd scene of the mutants today, you're going to have somebody who's green, somebody who's like twice as tall as everybody else. Somebody yeah. who's, this is just a, this is just a panel of a bunch of people in like normal white American business wear. Yeah. Um, I feel, well, I feel bad for this older guy in the front because he probably died before anyone knew he was a mutant. <laughs> Well, and we go back into continuity or add everything retroactively and Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister and the Dark Beast and all these people are already around, but they didn't know that back then, obviously. But it's fun to add this together because this is kind of the first sign of a wider world of mutants out there. Uh, Susanna, do you want to take over on page seven again? Yeah, um, I don't know, we get a little bit more with Mesmero, you know, he's talking about his evil plan or whatever, but then we cut to uh, Lorna's first appearance in the comic, which is this kind of like, slightly awkwardly staged scene of Bobby Drake saving her from being hit by a car using ice instead of just pulling her out of the way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, no explanation of how he got here from, um, 
from his uh, paratrooping adventure. He's just, he's in a suit now. He's on the street. He's next to where Lorna is. And keep up. <laughs> yeah. And Lorna notably has brown hair here. And she has no idea how she got here or how she got yeah. summoned by Mesmero's machine. I'm 1,200 miles from home and all I can remember is my name. I do. I just, did he, did he mind control everyone to buy plane tickets? <laughs> I... Did she, did she walk here? Did she fly with her magnetic powers? <laughs> Just, I, yeah. I'll say reading this, it, it does make me sort of wish comics were like this anymore. It would make my job a lot easier. <laughs> I'd be like, it doesn't, it's fine. It's fine. It doesn't need to make sense. <laughs> and Iceman is, of course, super fucking gay. He's also dating a girl. He's also dating a girl <laughs> named Zelda Kurtzberg. But here's this young damsel in distress who doesn't know who she is, and now he is heart eyes. It's going to be so easy to keep her as my beard. She barely knows her name. <laughs> All my friends will think God, I'm the, straight. The line where he's like, "Why don't you come up to my pad and have a hot cup of Java?" And she goes, "I," with her hand to her head, like she's still faint. Goes, "I'm in no condition to refuse, even if I wanted to." And I'm like, "Then maybe Bobby shouldn't be making you come up to his apartment." And then fucking Beast. A few minutes later, we'll see it a second. Like, hey, Bobby's got a new love interest. I'm like, just met. <laughs> she, doesn't know, she doesn't know who she is. Uh, yeah, there's so much happening on this page that I <laughs> that is just just panel by panel. Like I love the I love this guy in the background. Again, there's this there's a bunch of human beings in the background, and one of them is a mustachioed hippie. Um, <laughs> and there's this guy bending over the deuce. What's ice doing on the streets of San Francisco? Like <laughs> bending down to touch the ice that Bobby has left behind. Um, and then then Angel Angel and Cyclops and um, and Jean get into basically a, a fantastic four car that the avengers gave them and go from my i'm not sure where their base right now. is they in new york and the other guys are on the west coast i think they're all just in new york frankly and i think roy thomas went holy shit the x-men don't have a jet i better throw in a line or not roy thomas arnold drake better throw in a line that says the avengers loaned it <laughs> yeah um i love the way i love the way gene is drawn flying where she's just kind of like floating like an angular in air and then there's, so there's just a little family circus dotted line behind her. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then, then there are these two panels where where Hank just dreams out Bobby for bringing a strange girl home when the X-Men are about to come over. What about their secret identities? And then the three X-Men just in full costume walk in the door. Um, and do you Jean know opens it up with a hand on her hip like, thought, bet you thought you'd seen the last of me. Like. And do you know that? Do you notice like, the colors guys, of their? Do you notice the colors of their walls? This like the bachelor pad. There, it's all pink and yellow. <laughs> a lot. It's a I lot. know these are colors that are adapted for. You know, this is not probably how they originally looked. Probably, but I kind of dig them. Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, they're really really intense. Yeah, the bright pink walls are are kind of cool. And then Susanna, take us through pages nine and ten. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they all, they all, uh, Lorna apparently, Bobby apparently put Lorna down for a nap um, so that they can, they can converse freely. And um, Beast has, has made um, uh, this really wild looking uh, mini Cerebro. Does he call it a mini Cerebro? No, he says a miniaturized Cerebro, a portable mutant detector. Um, Which is something we a, see in the, in the later comics a lot, these little mini Cerebros being used. Yeah, and so he stays back to put the finishing touches on that. Um, and everybody else goes off to uh, um, to find uh, a 
and what Cyclops refers to as a mutant squad, um, and we'll then immediately the just start fighting them. Matt, what do you think of this full page splash page battle? It's I'm not a so busy. It's very sixties Batman. Yeah. 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 It's got a splat. Um, it's a, got a crack. And a whoosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like it reminds me of like um like I look at this and I think about like, you know, a couple years from now, Jack Kirby's gonna make it be making like fourth world stuff and he's gonna like really figure like when he does a full page, he will do it this busy, but you can tell exactly what's going on. And I wonder if like if this is like if it's the coloring, if it just needs better like, you know, better like different differentiation between all of these like it's like it's, dozen human figures on this and like it's almost like it's a montage instead of and instead of them all being in the same place, the same plane, it's like it's kind of just no one's in relation to each other seem to be standing on anything real. It's weird. And then this gun in the bottom right poking into the screen. It's like a penis. <laughs> <laughs> that gun poking in over the edge of the panel does feel very Kirby. Like, yeah. That very- does that, you know, like... I don't, I mean, if that looks like a penis, you, that's really <laughs> trouble. <laughs> hey. Don't, it is vaguely phallic, though. Don't judge his mutant power. <laughs> <laughs> I think the soundtrack for this page is like, like hijinks, Scooby-Doo characters running in and out of doors. Every, think, yeah. every energy discharge on the next few pages, and this one is all yellow. Like it's just yellow. Cyclops's blast is yellow. Gene's telekinesis is yellow. The gun blasts yeah. are yellow. Hmm. Yeah, and the 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 uniforms in this era they're just they lack. They're not uniforms. Like there's nothing uniform about them. They're better. <laughs> they're better than they used to be. This is their third <laughs> version of the costumes, and they're so much better. <laughs> yeah. I never liked this angel costume, but for some reason, reading this, I was like, eh, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I kind of like it actually. Yeah. It's very ketchup um, and mustard, but I like it. Yeah. Uh, Angel gets shot and falls out of the sky, but luckily he only has bruises. <laughs> Gosh, I love that. There's there's a whole panel teasing, like, maybe Angel is dead. And then you turn the page, you're like, no, nah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, just got those hollow bird bones. It's ultimately, I mean, they just needed a couple action pages where they're fighting this silly latent army of the Demi-Men, although they're never called that. Uh, and then we cut back to Beast at uh, at his apartment, finishing the mini Cerebro. Lorna has waken up from her nap, taken off her gorgeous yellow dress and jumped in the shower, but her hair dye has washed out and revealed it uh, to be green. So she comes out in a bathrobe, sees Beast in costume and is like, you're not Bobby, uh, you're wearing a strange costume. He says, greetings fair lady. I'm a bosom companion of body Bobby's and I'm on my way to a costume ball. I would be scared. Uh, he comments on her green <laughs> hair, to which she says, that's my lifelong secret. I was born this way. I dye it to avoid attracting the curious, but the dye washes out. You'll keep my secret. And he realizes, oh, she must be a mutant. Yep, uh, tell me your thoughts on the first reveal of Lorna Dane's green hair. Are you guys Polaris fans? Kind of. I always thought she was cool. I'm a sucker for green hair, honestly. 
I, I don't know a ton more about her than that, but I always liked the design. And she's always been like the, I kept at arm's length from the rest of the X-Men are always like, they're always shitting on her for some reason. Like, I don't know why she has such. She's, it's mind. ironic that she's like the lesser daughter of Magneto. Now yeah. she is Magneto's <laughs> actual, bio, only actual biological daughter, living biological daughter. Um, we'll talk about yeah, that not, in just a minute. The Magneto of it all. Yeah. I, I yeah. what? Why was she? I mean, I guess it's the '60s, so you can't walk around with green hair. But I don't know. So, yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a fun culture shock. But just like, but also her just like, oh yes, no, it, the dye washes out, or it's like, we're yeah. gonna get some better dye, or like, don't take a shower in a strange right. man's. You're really bad. Everybody's really bad yeah. at keeping their secret identities in the '60s. No, Chris Claremont obviously did a lot with Polaris, but never as a feature character. Peter David has done a ton of work with her in various versions of X Factor. Mm -hmm. uh, we got to see her in Leah Williams' X Factor most recently, followed up by her winning the uh, X-Men vote for the first X-Men team. Uh, so she's been in the primary X-Men books, although she's on her way out of the book because a new vote took place and some new characters will come in. So we've seen her yeah. featured quite prominently in the comics in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, but we see her a lot in the 60s, but never very prominently. But this is the third female mutant ever to be revealed. Mm. We have Jean Grey, we have the Scarlet Witch, who's technically not a mutant anymore. And now we have Polaris. So this is an impactful panel at the very least. Um, oh, go ahead. I got to draw her in Prisoner, Prisoner X, so that was fun. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. She was in Prisoner X with uh in, in Vita Ayala's book. Yeah, that was great. I got to draw a cool, cool panel of her uh floating and having impaled a bunch of guards and stuff. It was yeah. She's a great okay. character when handled by the right writer. But uh, by the way, I want to say filling in on Prisoner X, um and, and basically did the end of the series was were my pages of that book. And I felt very, I like, read the whole thing and I was like, oh no, this is kind of good. Like I really can't blow it here on my <laughs> eight pages or whatever it was that I had. So I felt, uh, uh, I felt a lot of pressure to do a good job. There's a, yeah, when there's an X on the title, there's a, yeah. <laughs> apparently you did great because they keep bringing you back and I'm happy about that. Yeah. People told me they couldn't tell which pages were mine. So I was like, okay, that's, I'll take that. That's fine. So the X-Men come back. They say, uh, obviously, Lorna is a mutant. Uh, if I didn't know better, I'd say Magneto was behind this plot. And she's like, mutant powers? Magneto, what is all this? Uh, I'm going to talk about her backstory in just a minute. Peter David took this panel and what's happening to her in this issue and explained it many, many, many years later, like in the last few years in the comic books. Uh, so I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, so they're remembering how Magneto disappeared into, quote unquote, a watery grave at the end of their last fight. They think he's dead. He is not. Uh, and they decide to go out and uh, find this mutant army who they think is being led by Magneto. They leave Lorna behind with Iceman to protect her. Uh, but as soon as they leave, Mesmero and his ugly orange and blue guys attack. Uh, Iceman immediately quips with icy puns because that's what does as he blasts them with various ice structures uh but mesmero goes all uh crazy eyed and takes mental control of iceman who is now paralyzed uh, he describes it as a terrible pressure in his skull like great streams of lava rolling down and over my entire brain <laughs> <It's weird. laughs> it's just so dramatic 
Uh, Lorna screams as Mesmero identifies her as M2, which kind of looks like M11, uh, which is kind of a loose association with Magneto part two, because then they immediately bow before her and call her the daughter of Magneto. Okay, so Peter David has explained this. We're going to see more of this in the in the future 60s books, but here's Lorna's story. 60s Magneto was a terrible evil guy. He had an affair with a human woman wanting to produce a mutant child. She was married to another man who's named Arnold, I believe after Arnold Drake. And uh, and she believes these are her parents, but they're fighting on a plane one day while she's riding with them as a kid. And she hears that Magneto's her father. Uh, Susanna admits, I, I think her mother's name is Susanna, I think. I might have a Freudian slip because Gosh. I have a name, Susanna. I'll look it up in just a second. <laughs> Uh, but she hears her mother mention Magneto. Her powers activate at that moment. She freaks out and causes the plane to crash. And her parents are both killed in that crash. And Lorna, because X-Men of- have the worst luck with planes. <laughs> <laughs> Lorna has uh, Lorna has trauma from this and buries the memories, and then is raised by her mother's sister and her husband, and takes on the last name Dane. So in this book, it's revealed she's Magneto's daughter. Shortly after this, they go back and say, actually, she's not Magneto's daughter. And it's in a far future book that they will say, yes, she actually is Magneto's daughter. Uh, Right before (laughs) House of M is when it's finally revealed to be true. Uh, Any thoughts on that origin story? Great job, Peter David. We needed that story to make sense of this character, but uh, tell me your thoughts. I I didn't realize it it was that late that it got explained. Mm -hmm. I don't know if just because I was a kid and, and, you know, no, she's got magnet power, so she must be Magneto's daughter kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> and but, we, don't uh, even know, we don't even know she has magnet powers here. Right now, all we know she well, has yeah. hair. <laughs> As her mutant power is having green hair. Yeah. <laughs> that resists all dyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's a character who's been portrayed as kind of mentally unstable often in her appearances, like quick temper, kind of crazy actions. But she uh, she's powerful. And in, in the modern books, she's kind of obsessed with coffee and dresses. And it's kind of a different take on her. But it's kind of fun to see her just at peace with herself. Uh, I don't know. She's a great character. I like her a lot when she's handled correctly. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think I don't think I really even became like aware of like, con- like in a in a strong way aware of her existence until until the, I started reading the modern books and like, sort of getting into things and hearing people talk about Lorna and like talk about her appearances and books and, and like, you know, having basically no context for her, Um, you know, literally just like, wait, Magneto has like a, has a green daughter (laughs) instead of a red one (laughs) uh, was a surprise to me, but I love, I love her modern incarnation where she's just like this, like, she's very much this presence who just like walks into either a room with Magneto or the X-Men and like says one incredibly cutting true thing that just like reminds them that they are far, very far from perfect people. Um, and that she is like evidence of like shit, their shitty pasts. Um, I yeah. just, looked, I just looked her up and her mother's name is Susanna and her father's All right. name is Arnold. So yeah. Yay, you and you I and Arnold Drake. Spe- I bet it's not spelled the same way. It's S-U-Z-A-N-N-A. You and but yeah, you and Arnold yeah, Drake yeah. can have a love child. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, what were you just gonna say? I, I do love how, like I was saying, she's she's kind of been mistreated and 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 pushed to the side and and been like this the green-headed stepchild of the X-Men. 
<laughs> and uh, and I do like how in newer stuff, they've kind of taken that to where she's like, you know what? You guys have shit on me so much. I don't care what you think anymore. And I'm just going to say what I think. And yeah. I'm fine like with if, it. You know? Like if Magneto is a god for these powers, I can do that. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, why am I letting you guys be treat me like crap all the time? I'm stronger than half of you. Bobby was initially attracted to her because she was helpless and had no memories. He stayed attracted because of the drama. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that is how I will like headcanon why she went up to his apartment. She's maybe like, oh, it's fine. He's gay. Like, and then she walks, she walks out and Hank's in this like gimp costume. And she's like, oh, okay, no, it's fine. It's fine. She was Nobody here is going to touch me. She was roofied, man. Uh, so I've been reading. I've been reading uh, Mesmero's chronology. So here's a question for Susanna. Although Matt, if you have any comments, at what point did it become okay for supervillains to have rape as part of their origins? Uh, so you see characters that are constantly manipulating women, mind controlling them into doing things, and then at a certain point, that became not okay. It seemed like an acceptable thing for villains to do. And then there was like a snap of the fingers. And then suddenly that was not an all right storyline anymore. Uh, when do you think that took place? What what was the shift? I don't know. I mean, I think like you can even look look at like Alias to see like uh, a, a female superhero who has an origin story that like doesn't explicitly have rape in it. Um, but like is... Obviously, I mean, obviously there's a lot of trauma there, but there's like, there's like even a line in the book, I'm pretty sure that is explicitly like, Kilgrave never actually like touched me. He would mind control other women and rape them in front of me. Um, and I think that like, even there, like, I don't know if I could pin it to a year, but you can see even like, you know, someone like Bendis doing this story about trauma and like, really like media, like attempting to really specifically mediate like the level of like of content in it um and yeah i don't know i think like i think you know obviously like um gail simone's discussion of fridging like goes a long way to really exposing the number of female characters in comics that had sexual trauma at some point you know, in their backstory. Um, and I think, you know, we even like, even the evolution of like looking at stories like the killing joke and saying like, no, like the Joker or like stripping her naked, that is sexual assault. Like, you know, that's not just like some, you know, that is happening in that book, even though it's kind of like alighted um, in certain ways. Maybe we don't see like him actually doing it, but that is, that is in there, that is the implication. Um, I don't, I don't know if I could put a finger on like when it changed. Um, and so, I think, I think there's still, there are still people today who'd probably try to write those stories. Um, I mentioned before we do characters on trial. So this is a very preemptive announcement because it's not going to happen until this fall, but we're going to do a joint trial for two characters that have similar power sets that are super rapey, but they don't have enough appearances for their own trials. Uh, and we're going to do mastermind and Mesmero together. And Mastermind has the story of the whole Jean Grey Phoenix thing where he, you know, takes control of her mind and makes her think she's married to him. And Mesmero has multiple storylines where it's uh, seeing a woman on the street, meet me back in my hotel room. And she's like, yes, master. I mean, it's just, it's creepy and uncomfortable. If I were to host a discussion about this topic, uh, Susanna, would you be willing to come back and talk to us about this a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I probably have to do a little research, but yeah, well, I would, and yeah. I would do research too. Let me, uh, let me consider that. We we occasionally do conversation themed podcasts, and that might be an interesting topic yeah. to explore. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I usually think about it from the the standpoint of like female characters with trauma and like those tropes and the way that we like unpack those and like the 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 attempts to like get away from or criticize or or um or point out like the pattern of like women only get to be heroes once they have undergone like like um like infractions to their bodily autonomy um that like that like there's like a core trauma that makes women into heroes that like doesn't get mapped onto men in the same way um but i hadn't thought about doing it like like villains the like um what's the, what's the the trope name where like it's like called like kicking the puppy or like something or killing mm-hmm. the kitten or something where like the way you show that some the way you quickly show that a character is completely villainous and we're not supposed to sympathize with them at all is that you show them doing something really heinous like that nobody could possibly like get with them you know get with them but you know what I mean <laughs> like could stand by them for and I understand immediately like that these are bad guys um and I think then you know but I hadn't thought about like you know the the use of um rape or sexual assault like as like um because it's hard it's one of those things that like can be hard to explain like why it's not great right because what you're showing is this is bad he's a villain because he's doing this bad thing um, I was just going to say, we talk a lot about Professor X and his use of powers. I was like, at least he never raped somebody. But then I remembered the Gabrielle Haller situation, which is a little rapey. One of the cruelest things that, they, that Patrick Stewart as Professor X did was convince, convince a ton of people who'd only seen the movies that Professor X was a nice, kindly old man, yeah. like their space dad. Who Captain does not Picard. have a child <laughs> army that he lies to all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, I think like you said, uh, maybe not just Bendis, but I think other writers probably around that time started examining those things from more than just, you know, bad, this is shorthand for this is a really bad guy. Like yeah. they started to, to try and talk about it in a little more nuanced way and maybe talk about it from the woman's perspective as opposed to just this is part of our, our framework. Yeah. And then I do remember, I'm not a DC person, but wasn't it in 52 or Final Crisis or something like there was a Dr. Light rape or something like that? Yeah, that was. Um, and I feel like that might have been a tipping yeah. point because I feel like a lot of people are like, okay, mm-hmm. are we still doing this? And I feel yeah. like that was kind of a tipping point. Yeah, right? the, the discussion around like rape as a catalyst for a rape of a woman as a catalyst for her like male friends and family to like do something horrible to a supervillain or like cross a line or have an emotional reaction. Um, And I I think also it speaks to like an evolving standpoint on how to use like um, extraneous theme, like female extras in a comic. Um, And like what, you know, like, like I think, you know, as a, as a, as a, a, Batman fan like I have to go back and look at the all these comics where Bruce Wayne is like going on a date with some woman that he has no idea who he is um and he is using her to protect a secret identity maybe even sleeping with her and he has no intention of like 
having an emotional connection with her, like having, you know, like he's, he is lying to her the entire time. And it's like, oh, well, you know, he's Batman, Batman's so cool. And he has all this sex with hot babes, but he never, you know, he never gets close to them. And, and there's a point where you look at that and you're like, man, this guy is a sexual predator. Like, like this is not chill. Um, like this is really, he's using these women under false pretenses to maintain his secret identity. And that's that, and like independent of like, you know, the, the, you know, the stuff about Batman that I do enjoy digging into, which is like his inability to connect with people and like what he does when he does actually care for women, you know, independent of like, yeah, you know, Batman's relationships are never going to work out because status quo, but like, there's, there's some stuff in there where you just like, it's like, yeah, you, we need to get stories to evolve to a certain point where we need to re-examine the idea that Bruce Wayne um, takes socialites out to events with him on the idea that he's going to date them, um, knowing full well that it's never going to happen and he is just going to string them as long, string them along, you know, as long as he can until they get tired of him. It's okay. Um, it's okay to lie to your date as long as you're protecting your secret identity, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know, like I read Batman year one when I was like, 11 which is way too young <laughs> to read batman year one but like it wasn't until I, I was an adult that i looked at it and was like yo when like commissioner gordon comes over to interview bruce wayne and like bruce and alfred put on this whole show of like ginger ale and a champagne bottle and bruce is in like his little tiny dressing gown that only goes down to his thighs and he's sitting on the couch with some nameless woman who is also in a dressing gown doesn't has no dialogue and just leans on him there's like no explanation for where she comes from, why she's there, how they hired her, like mm. that they're just using like, like this, they're set dressing versus, you know, like the, those are there, the, the evolution, there's an evolution also in, it goes back to my point, that there's an evolution also in how comics treat, um, use women as set dressing um, and use like extras um, for like, you know, for specific like tropes and to prop up specific ideas instead of going, who is this woman that I've introduced into my comic and where where did she come from and where is she going after this? And does she represent our readers? You know, like our, do, our, do our readers see her as also likewise, just a piece of set dressing or a part of the world that doesn't connect to them or do they see themselves in it? Well, let me be clear to our listeners. There's no section of sexual assault in this particular issue. I'm mostly yeah. reflecting on my research into the character Mesmero and the character Mastermind and how there's a lot of sexual assault. And listeners have heard me do this on the podcast before. I'll start noticing themes and then I'll form a discussion around it. Uh, we had a conversation, for example, Xavier in the older issues starts using a robotic walking suit so he can walk around. Uh, and then we had a conversation about ableism that followed. Or when I researched the blob, we had a conversation about body positivity afterwards. So let me give some thoughts, Suzette, and I'll reach out to you. I would love to uh, oh. to have a focused discussion about this. Um, I got to find that issue with, with his leg braces because I, I discovered last year, my father admitted to me that he had written, my father was a Marvel Comics fan back in the day. And he, he told me that he, he, he revealed to me that he had gotten a letter published in I was like couldn't remember like either X-Men or maybe the Avengers like blah, 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 and I managed to track it down with I tweeted about it on Twitter and Douglas Wolk found it immediately and replied oh, really? to me with it and it's it's this letter from my dad who he wrote when he was like eight 
um, that has his address at the bottom of it because they were just printing reader addresses <laughs> at the end of letters in the 60s. So if you didn't like what someone said, you could go to their apartment and pop them in the jaw. Um, and, uh, and it's about him being like, I think I think Professor X's leg braces are aces. And I don't, I don't think Jean Grey should date that guy, that guy from college. She should stay with Cyclops. There's, like, a, there's <laughs> the issue with the locust, which actually we have Leah Williams on for. Uh, there's, there's a spot where Professor X for no reason puts on his walking suit and then a hermit disguise. And then he walks up to the villain and is like, surprise, it's me, Professor X. For literally no reason. Like there's there's just no purpose to it at all. It doesn't serve the plot. Uh, and we had, we had Douglas Wolk on the podcast very recently. Uh, I have massive amounts of respect for him. And in fact, no. at the start of today's episode, when I said I couldn't find anything on Herb Cooper, I literally emailed Douglas and said, hey, do you know anything about Herb Cooper? And he goes, no, I don't have any intel for you. But he's, he's, a, he's a wealth of information. Um, let me cover the backstory really quickly. Uh, I want to cover the uh, credentials fast. So we've been doing these origin stories of each of the X-Men one at a time in the last five pages. So this is where last issue we got a feature on Beast's powers. This, this uh, last five page story is called The Beast is Born. It's by Arnold Drake and Werner Roth with inks by John Verporten and letters by Irving Watanabe. Now, in a previous podcast, I, uh, I said, just like with Herb Cooper, I couldn't find anything on Irving Watanabe. So I reached out to a couple of sources. Uh, Irving Watanabe was a Japanese man who was born in Hawaii in the 1920s, I believe, who had a long career and a lot of friends in the comic book industry, but he was one of Marvel's first uh, diverse hires. Um, I also reached out to John Cimino, who is uh, a, a contact or, or uh, the manager for Roy Thomas, uh, and I've had Roy on the podcast. And here's what Roy had to say about Irv Watanabe really quickly. So thank you, Roy, for sharing your memories. He says, uh, Irv Watanabe was then a middle-aged Japanese-American letterer who did some lettering for Marvel in the 1960s, maybe early 70s, not a huge amount. I never knew him well. And the only thing I remember about him is that when he lettered Submariner number six in October 1968, my script had instructions on the final page for the bottom of the last panel. Quote, letter as if carved in rock, imperious Rex. And wouldn't you know it, when the finished art and inking came in, that's exactly what was written in that spot. Quote, letter as if carved in rock, imperious Rex. <laughs> I had the offending six words deleted, of course. The other thing I knew about Irv is from a story that it was apparently true that I've heard about him several times. It's that his first name was a really more Japanese one, but he decided to change his name. So he uh, changed, used just his first name, not his last, thus becoming the odd combination of Jewish Irving and Japanese Watanabe. Uh, best wishes, Roy. So Roy, thank you. Uh, as always, we are uh, hugely in honor of your talent and your sharp, incredible memory. Uh, Roy remembers everything. Uh, so uh, with that, let's jump into this uh, five pages really quick. There seemed to be a need for people back then to explain how people became mutants. So this is weirdly a story of Beast's father, uh, Henry McCoy, <clears throat> getting exposed to atomic radiation, which maybe explains why Beast is such an asshole. <laughs> it was it was predestined before birth. Uh, we flash back to uh, 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 Norton. Sorry, I said I said the wrong name. Norton McCoy is Beast's father. Uh, his marriage to Edna Andrews. Uh, they're a little worried. She's a little worried when they move to a small town based around an atomic energy plant. Have you guys ever been to a town that's like abandoned now because they built it back in the 40s or whatever uh, in, in like atomic energy circles? 
there's like a bunch of, I, I live in Utah and there's like a bunch of ghost towns in Utah and Idaho that were built around mines or atomic stuff. And now they're completely shut down. Uh, that's what this reminded me of. In fact, there's, there's a place called Atomic City, Idaho. That's a ghost town that I've been to. It's, it's very scary, strangely. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, uh, Norton saves the day. There's some nuclear rods that are going to be out. People could die, but he saves the day, gets them replaced, but he gets exposed to atomic energy. So later when Edna finds out she's pregnant, she's very worried. The child might not be normal, the doctor says. She says, oh, how terrible. To which Norton says, easy, Edna, no point in crying. After all, the kid might be better than normal. Uh, Hell yeah, Mr. Beast's dad. Hell yeah. (laughs) Well, and Beast is like one of the X-Men who had a relatively happy childhood. Uh, I don't know. I like these (laughs) two, but... Uh, so Beast is born, or Henry's born with giant feet. Uh, his his uncle Bob comes over to visit and he punches him right in the chin. And then we see this cute little image of him holding his bottle with his feet to close out. Of course, to be continued into the next issue's backup story. Uh, tell me your thoughts on this little five-page backup or just on Beast in general. Yeah. I love that. I love that like Stanley was like, I want to make a bunch of new superheroes and I don't want to have to come up with an origin story for each of them. Um, I'm gonna make mutants. Everybody just has one origin story, and now, now the writers are going back and being like, "Nah, we need a specific origin story for every single one of these guys." But every good mutant has a good origin story too. Yeah, yeah. I I had no idea this was this was Beast's origin. I had no idea this was ever established or anyone even talked about it. I just I I was assumed that the most of the mutants are like, yeah, they're just mutants, and like that's half the reason they made them mutants is they didn't have to come up with origins for them. Beast grew, like, Beast grew up I, on like an Iowa farm, a uh, pretty happy childhood football star. And then a right. super villain comes in and kidnaps his parents. And that's how he gets in the X. Oh, wow. We'll talk about that in the next few issues. Yeah. yeah, no, like I've, I've had conversations with coworkers lately. I think like, especially when foundation was coming out, um, the television show of just exploring this idea of like, yeah, there was this period in science fiction where like atomic power was going to do everything. Um, and that's, you know, and people are like, 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 geez, Spider-Man is radiation, the Fantastic Four is radiation, the Hulk is radiation. It's like, yeah, like it was the atomic age. Like this was what was going on in science fiction at the time. It was, it was the new thing. It was, you know, we've, we've made it genetics now because genetics for a while was also like the science fiction thing that was going to do everything. Um, and it's, it's just something that is kind of like faded into the, because the, the, connotations for nuclear power and radiation are so different now um, that it can make sometimes make these stories like slightly incomprehensible um, when you have folks just like yeah you know like radiation reviewed, it'll make your babies healthier we reviewed um, an iron man story on the podcast a while back iron man literally accidentally sets off an atomic bomb in his front yard angels flying overhead and the atomic energy mains, makes Angel turn evil for several pages, and then he's back to normal. Like it's, uh, yeah, they they, <laughs> they were loose with their logic back then, of course. Uh, I do love the panel where Uncle Bob is like coochie coochie coo, and the baby just fucking punches him in the face. That made me happy. <laughs> and I do love Beast's big feet holding his bottle. I think it's adorable. Yeah, yeah. I I have a I have a ten month old right now, and she she holds her bottle with her feet sometimes. Yeah, okay. I was like, this not is not odd. too unusual. No. <laughs> Do you just have the I, one, Matt? Uh, no, I have a ten-year-old too. Okay. Oh God, that's an age gap. Yeah. Don't 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 question it too much. <laughs> Mine are thirteen and ten, and I don't want oh, another yeah. baby ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Susanna, do you have kids? No. 
<laughs> so yeah, that's just not the thing for some. <laughs> no, 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 no. My brother is seven years younger than I am, so I do, I do relate to the uh, the big gap family. Mm. My mother said, my mother would always say that he was an, he was uh, an accident, but not a mistake. Nice. That we loved him very much, and we we're glad to have him. <laughs> I have to remember. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what a delight to get to know you both. I hope you had fun just nerding out with me and then reviewing this old nonsense issue. Uh, we are going to continue Gray Malkin Lane next time reviewing X-Men number 50, which follows up directly from this uh, with the artist Steve Rude. And after that, X-Men 51 with the uh, the incredible talent uh, Dan Jurgens. So we've got some really fun names coming up on the pod in the next few episodes. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, where could people find each of you online and what would you like to plug or announce that you have coming up recognizing we're releasing this on July 20th. Uh, you can find Gray Malkin Lane under that name on Instagram or Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter. We're posting content from the episodes regularly and I'm happy to chat or engage anytime. Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Susanna then Matt. Um, so I'm on Twitter at, um, I'm sorry, I couldn't get my actual name. My Twitter handle is, and is nerdgirl, N-E-R-D-G-E-R-H-L. Um, it's Perfect. an obscure reference to a song from the V for Vendetta soundtrack, because that's the kind of nerd that I am. Um, and I write on polygon.com, which is where you can find pretty much all of my work. Um, and I'm having a busy July. I'm going to be at San Diego Comic-Con. Um, but we're also going to be continuing to... We decided this year that I got a couple, I got a bunch of queer sort of pride comics um, freelance posts going together and essays. And we had a few of them in a busy June and we decided why keep it to June? So we're gonna keep publishing some stuff. I've got a piece coming up where I just talk about um, making Tim Drake gay um, and how that's like not only great, for, like, you know, the, it's actually great for his character, not just great for like more diverse representation. And I've got a piece coming up from a freelancer that um, is about um, the the trans writer who picked up New Patrol right out of um, Grant Morrison's boots. Um, his name is her name is Rachel Polak. Um, that hasn't been edited yet, but that's on me. <laughs> it's the life of an editor. Um, but yeah, we're going to be publishing those things through July and a bunch of San Diego Comic Con coverage and uh, and just you know everything. Marvel just put out their new Pride anthology uh, the week before we recorded this. And I think they quadrupled their number of transgender characters in one issue. Uh, delightful, wonderful trans characters with superpowers. Uh, I, I'm super happy. It was wonderful to see. Uh, thanks for all the work you're doing, Susanna. I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to see everything you have coming up. Oh, thanks. All right, Matt. So, hey, thanks for your interview today. Uh, let us know, and as, as we're wrapping up, where people can find you online and what are you able to announce uh, coming forward or, or what, what do we have to look forward to for you coming up, recognizing this issue comes out in late July? Yeah, you can find me um, on Instagram at Horak Matt or on Twitter at Matt Horak. And, and Horak is H-O-R-A-K for everybody. That's right. Um, and there's a website, matthorak.com. You can see some of my stuff, older stuff. I haven't updated it in a while, of course. <laughs> but uh, as far as books I have out there, I have a, a bunch of Infinity Comics in, on the Marvel Unlimited app, uh, Spiderbot, uh, X-Men Unlimited. Um, I'm doing some stuff for Marvel Scholastic coming up that uh, hasn't really been announced, but keep an eye out for that. And then I have the two issues of Norse mythology from Dark Horse that are out there and the, the hardcover is out with my issues in it. And then I will be at some conventions in the near future. Um, 
Gem City Comic Con in Dayton, that's July 23rd and 24th. Neo Comic Con in North Olmsted, Ohio, that's July 31st. And then Fan Expo Boston, August 12th through the 14th. And I am taking commissions for those shows, so if anybody's interested, just uh, contact me through one of those places I mentioned and we'll get it going. I'm super excited. I've commissioned a piece from Matt uh, that'll be added to my wall soon of the uh, incredible Sauron, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I love your art. I will not be at any of those cons, man, but if I'm ever in the same place, I'll make sure to come up and say hi. Uh, I am a huge fan of both of yours, and now I'm happy to call you both friends. Uh, what talented, incredible, delightful people. This has been lovely to just uh, hang out for 90 minutes. Thank you so much for your time and your talents. This was been This has been great. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, we'll see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.